Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist. To focus on the emotional connection more than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, feelers, to episode 111. Holy cow. That makes a lot of sense, Patrick. You'd almost think we planned it this way. <laughs> I'm Aaron, and I am not writing solo for this conversation. With me is the Chewy to my Han, my best friend and co-pilot, Patrick. <laughs> so another Star Wars film has arrived, and that means another social media catfight between fans and haters is bound to consume the internet for a few weeks. But we're here to talk through which side we fall on and keep it civil. As long as Patrick agrees with me, that is. <laughs> well, brother, before we get into this one, let's catch up, man. We have not gotten a chance to talk about what we've been watching lately in a few weeks. Our schedules have been nuts. And I would love to hear if anything has stood out to you lately. Well, with the arrival of a new anthology film from the Star Wars universe, I had thought about going back and revisiting Rogue One, uh, Gareth Edwards' directorial attempts at a Star Wars feature. And I know it's had mixed reviews. You and I had an interesting conversation about that uh, when we reviewed it. But what I decided to do was not just go back to that film, but go back to the director. And I really wanted to check out what his first feature film was all about. And so I did a little internet searching and I found that he directed and wrote a movie called Monsters back in 2010. This was a movie I hadn't seen. And I was even more interested in it when I found out that it's actually slated to be a TV series at some point this year, at least it's in development. So I'm thinking movie turned television show. What's this about? It's also got one of my favorite actors, Scoot McNary, who was part of the halt and catch fire series. I kind of really enjoyed his acting and that kind of gravitated towards him as an actor. So I had high hopes going into it and I, I wasn't disappointed at all. This is a movie that it's about, the not too distant future, it, it kind of has a midnight special meets Cloverfield vibe to it. And what's happened is NASA had sent a probe or something over to Europa, uh, one of the moons of Jupiter. Ugh, my astronomy might be a little It's fuzzy. usually Jupiter when we talk about moons of other planets, I think. Yeah, it's because it's the biggest and it's probably got the most to offer. So anyway... Um, it goes to search for intelligent life and the movie begins with this, with this little like title card overview saying, Hey, something went wrong. There were the, the probe came back and it crashed into the atmosphere and apparently it released these creatures that landed on the Southern side of the U S in the Northern part of Mexico, Central America, just in that area. And that whole section of this part of the country has been quarantined. So Scoop McNary plays a photojournalist and he's been hired to go out and kind of shoot this whole event that's taken place. He's trying to make a name for himself. He ends up getting put onto a job where he has to escort the daughter of the man who owns the newspaper that he works for. In other words, he's basically escorting the rich, rich girl, back to the U S side of, of all of this. And so the story follows those two as they're making their way back. They, uh, not to spoil much about it, but 
they have the option of going to the U.S. via a ferry, which is the, quote, safe route. It goes around the restricted quarantine zone, and uh, that costs them, I don't know, like $5,000, which is crazy. Or they can risk it, take a bigger risk, and go through the quarantine zone, um, which ironically actually costs them more. And again, not to spoil much, but they end up having to go take the second route. And so the story follows them as they're working their way through this this area and trying to get to the this big wall that's been constructed to, quote, keep the aliens out. Now, obviously, this at the point of when it was be, when it debuted in 2010, the subject matter is very allegorical when it comes to aliens that do not live in the U.S. and a big wall that's constructed uh, that tries to keep them out and a misunderstanding about these entities, about these beings that we really don't find out much about. And so Gareth Edwards plays with that idea. He plays with the notion that we that that old we fear what we don't understand. Um, what I was drawn to was the story was good. It was a film familiar. We've seen this before in a lot of your sci-fi movies. And when it's done well, I really appreciate it. I don't really care if it's a retold story, just if it's done in a fresh way. But what really drew me to it was not only the performances of our main actors, but also the fact that in Mexico where it was filmed, they were the only two that were actual like legit actors. Like everybody else were were locals. So everything every reaction was authentic. It felt very, very raw. And the cinematography is pretty outstanding. And I was actually pretty impressed with the the design of the creatures and some of the mystique that they had because we don't get to see a lot of them in their full like, raw. Um, I was reading one of Roger Ebert's reviews on that. And he said, you know, in a movie called Monsters, you expect to see monsters. And we don't get a lot of that but I think that adds to the real intrigue and the real mystery of this uh, drama survival story. And so it made me excited about the world building that was done in this film and how it could play out in a TV series. But I was really impressed. And I, I think, you know, he went on to do Godzilla, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm kind of excited about seeing it because of the fact that I feel like he does a really good job at handling monsters. <laughs> and so having him, uh, take the wheel at that. It makes me uh, makes me pretty excited about. He does indeed, and I actually really like his take on Godzilla. It's it's very similar. It's kind of a slower burn type of mm-hmm. Godzilla film, just like Monsters. This is not Pacific Rim type of film, and it, I love that movie. I love it quite a bit, and that's a big reason of why I was so excited when he was signed on to do Rogue One. Mm-hmm. But it just goes to show that you know a lot of times when these directors that we have seen do a certain thing, a certain movie, we assume that because they did that thing well, that they can do this franchise film well. But, you know, in his case, we both weren't huge fans of Rogue One, even though we like this other style of film he made. And Scott Derrickson is another one. I love his horror movies. The Exorcism of Emily Rose is one of my all-time favorite horror movies. Mm -hmm. But I don't dig Doctor Strange very much, you know? And so... It's not always a given that they're going to succeed in this new realm. And I just to kind of tie it in, I guess, to the, to the Star Wars idea. Well, and maybe it, maybe it's the franchise that, that does that. Maybe it's the restrictions or maybe the creative 
uh, constraints that are put on the directors. Now, Ryan Johnson, I mean, he had full creative control of his story. So I think that's probably what, at least I feel like why I gravitated towards my love for probably so because it didn't feel, it felt very open. It didn't feel constrained. It didn't feel templated. Whereas I think rogue one, which was fine. I felt like it had, it had a lot that maybe was taken away or changed. Um, and it just, again, I didn't have any, I didn't have a baseline for, for the director before seeing Rogue One because I hadn't seen anything before that. So seeing Monsters now, I was like, yay, I like Gareth Edwards. He's really good. And make more monster movies, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, so, I will I say, I, you know, I am going to go back two weeks, actually, because I saw Solo the first time a week before everyone else. And I immediately came back home. I was excited about seeing it. And so I wanted to experience the original Han Solo, with the knowledge of Alden Ehrenreich's interpretation and all of the origin stuff that we find out about. So I rewatched the entire Star Wars saga, not including Rogue One again, and not including some of the like Ewok movies or Clone Wars or any of that wacky stuff, but the original the, six. The eight, or, or the six. six. Yeah. Okay. I, I've seen Force Awakens and Last Jedi within six months, so... I didn't need to go back to them, but I did watch one through six. So the Roman numeral. I did. And I watched them in theatrical order. So I watched four, five, six, and then one, two, three. Okay. Um, It was the first time I'd rewatched the prequels in 20 years-ish, almost 20 years, I guess, because I haven't really seen them much since they released in theaters. I remember very avidly going to the theater at the time and... I remember dressing up for one of the midnight showings when they came out and having all these Legos. I was really into the prequels and I really loved them. And then the world told me I wasn't supposed to. And so I stopped, but uh, the big, I don't want to go through the rankings and this is, well, I am going to go through my rankings, but I don't want to go through my, I don't want to talk about each one in depth, but I want to highlight a couple things that, that happened with this latest watch. First thing that happened was empire and star Wars flipped. And I think, this is now going to be a case for me of whichever one I watch last is number one. So if I was to watch Star Wars right now, I bet you I would say, you know what, that's the best one. <laughs> and then if I watched Empire, you know what, that's the best one. But on this latest rewatch, I did kind of gravitate more to Empire than I ever have before. And it's interesting to me because I've watched it a million times and I think I've ranked it so highly in my own personal ratings because largely everyone says it's the best without necessarily going through the process of really thinking about it myself. And this time I really thought about it myself. And I was like, this is truly an epically crafted film. I mean, from start to finish, there's no, there's no lulls and that opening sequence on Hoth, everything about it from the beginning of the film through them finally escaping and leaving is probably one of my most favorite cinematic scenes of all time. I mean, I just, that whole sequence is just mind blowing, especially in context when you watch it directly after seeing Star Wars and you realize the jump in narrative depth and you, you realize the jump in quality of all the filmmaking and stuff like that. It highly elevates what you see in Empire. Other things that stuck out, Return of the Jedi is now my number three of the series. Many people have this one ranked lower and many people don't like Ewoks. I don't know why I love Ewoks, Patrick. I think they're really cute and cuddly. And people say, oh, who was it? One of our listeners had commented on my post 
at one point and said, I love Ewoks too, but not when they're a critical part of, you know, a story. And I was like, well, whatever. I really enjoy the way that that story goes. And I found the nuance in it to be just as almost just as impactful as the other two films. And and this one for me this time around became a five-star movie and it always kind of hovered in that four and a half range. I, after knowing Han's background, that helped too with making Return of the Jedi even more impactful for me. And so that that trilogy is now in the very, very small pantheon of all three five stars for me. Next thing that stood out on the prequel trilogy was that Phantom Menace sucks. I do not really love it. I don't think it sucks. I'm kidding. Uh, but honestly, like there's there was it was hard to get through. There are portions of the film that saves it for me. Darth Maul, Obi-Wan, the pod racing. There's a couple of moments. What I discovered when watching it, and even going throughout the prequel trilogy, though, is what I really loved about the prequels was the political intrigue. I loved this idea of a Senate and all these different people and that big room from planets from all over trying to get, you know, galactic uh laws passed right and trade this trade federation all of that stuff was really really cool and it kind of got derailed because it didn't get focused on i would have loved to seen like a political spy thriller type version of that prequel information so phantom menace didn't really work that great for me um attack of the clones was worse and if it wasn't for rogue one it would be my worst film of the entire star Wars era. It, it, Attack of the clones is just, it's pretty bad. Uh, it's the thing is that when I say it's pretty bad, even with rogue one, the movies are still enjoyable. And that is something else I noticed this time around is that you, I still would watch them all. You could sit me down in front of them and I might roll my eyes for half of it, but I would smile enough times that it would be a worthwhile experience. And that was a highlight of this series for me. Revenge of the Sith stood out big time and it jumped way the heck up my list to number four. I don't know if you've seen it like anytime recently, Patrick, but it is one of the most epic space operas ever made. It's phenomenal. I think what separates it for a lot of people, and when I say a lot of people, I really just mean me, (laughs) is that you have such a tonal shift from the first and second one. And, and I think that's one of the major criticisms with the trilogy. Look, I fully admit I saw, I saw the first, I saw episode one, probably like seven times in the theater. I mean, I was a fanboy. I was like, any chance I get to go see it. Cool. I'm going to do it. And at some point I just started going to see it because I was like, I'm just going to start collecting tickets. This would be fun. Um, and so at the time I was like you, I, I said, what's not to like. And apparently the internet said, this is what's not to like. And if you do like it, shame on you. But I think Revenge of the Sith began to put us in a place where we started taking the characters a lot more seriously. Whereas with Phantom Menace and Clone Wars, I don't know that that those two films understood what they were trying to be. In some ways, they were trying to be kid-friendly. In some ways, they were trying to be epic. And you can't mix those two, at least not without a slow burn or really great writing crew. And And that was a weakness on all three of them for me was the script writing was just not good. I mean, they're, they're quality actors in that, in, in that trilogy. 
and they didn't get to shine because they were just given really, really not great lines. And I couldn't take them seriously. I couldn't take some of the relationships seriously. I hope at some point it won't happen, but my hope would be let's erase those and start over and try it again and, and do a, a, a political espionage type of thing. Um, there's a, there's a web series. I don't even remember what it's called, but I remember watching it maybe about four months ago where a guy basically broke down and said, here's what I would do in these original three. And so he starts out, you know, cutting out pieces and parts from the first one. And by the time he gets to the third film, he's using sketches to say, this is what would have happened because the whole thing should center around Obi-Wan's journey, not Anakin. And he makes a fantastic point. And I would love to see that actualized. Yeah, I would too. I would definitely as well. And I agree with you. The The dialogue is what hurts it the most of anything. The The battle scenes in Revenge of the Sith are phenomenal. I mean, oh yeah, no they doubt. really are. General Grievous is such a cool concept, such a great design. The last hour of that when Order, whatever it is, 66, or I don't know the number. Now I'm going <laughs> to sound dumb. Um, whatever order it is that is terrible and is the betrayal of the Jedi – uh, that one, when that starts getting enacted, there are some amazingly emotional moments that are taking place. Is Grievous who I, I guess I've, I Grievous is like a robot and he has like a six or seven oh, arms, three or four yeah. arms. He's the one I called tuberculosis. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> a robotic that sounds like something you would do. So anyway, <laughs> that was my experience. Uh, this couple weeks ago is blazing through all of the star Wars films. I had a blast. I really enjoyed it. And like I said, as a lead in a solo, I highly recommend that if you enjoyed solo, that you do go back and somewhat soon revisit that original trilogy because it gives Han's character so much. I mean, it does what it's supposed to do. It gives him backstory and it's fun to rewatch it with that knowledge in your mind. So I think it was a good time. All right. A couple notes real quick before we get into the movie. First off, our donor episode, our donor pick episode voting for June is almost upon us, and we are going to cover a racing film this month. Not a racy film, <laughs> okay? Because we're not that kind of podcast. Yeah, no, not a racy film. Don't get excited. <laughs> this is like Secretariat type racy. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, Excellent. come. Visit patreon.com slash feeling film and uh, you can buy votes by becoming a supporter and you can participate in this month's poll. Voting takes place from the first to the 10th of the month. So June 1st to June 10th. And we would love to have you be a part of that. Also, we love to share other great podcasts that we ourselves enjoy. So check out this quick ad for a show that we like and then go listen to it when you have some time. Hey, what's up, Feeling Film listeners? My name is Eric, and I host a horror podcast called Gut Reactions. Every week, I'll take you guts deep into the themes and tropes of the best horror movies, television, and books that have ever been unleashed on mankind. From mainstream franchises like Insidious and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre to lesser-known gems like Tourist Trap and The Horror Express, I'm on a mission to cover them all, one bloody good movie at a time. Tune in to Gut Reactions on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or the podcast catcher of your choice. In the words of the Deadites, join us. All right, buddy. It's time to go. So, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, spoiler alert. We're going to spoil this movie. There is a big surprise. Surprise. So, we're going to tell you what that was. We're going to talk about that in depth. If you don't want to know, 
please go see Solo. Also, please go see Solo because it needs your money right now. All right? Just go. You've been warned. Patrick, <laughs> everybody who's left should have seen this, hopefully. I, I think there's a couple people that did go watch it, even if it didn't necessarily succeed by The Last Jedi or Avengers Infinity War standards. <laughs> not fair. <laughs> not fair. It's really not. But what was your one-word takeaway? Well, I didn't intend to do this, but I kind of like that this word came up because we just talked about Terminator 2 and how my one-word takeaway was the future. And the word that I took away from this it was going to be action because there was a lot of that. But I think the word that really stuck to me was, and I'm going to use another article, the past. All right. The reason why is that you're going to say something. You're going to say something snarky. Go ahead. Say it. Say it. So in next week's episode, is your connecting point going to be the present? The present? It might be. I'm going to try to find a way. Just to, to find it. a way. Okay. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs> so, <laughs> So there's this tendency, right, to actualize these stories from a cinematic universe's history. And look, we know that it's hit or miss when it comes to big, big franchises. I was talking to a coworker of mine about our Terminator 2 episode and how there's the possibility of it getting rebooted. And we talked a little bit about the movies that came after Terminator 2 and how we both kind of said, let's just leave it alone. It's fine. Don't don't break it because it's not or don't try to fix it because it's not broken and i think that like the sarah connor chronicles and the prequels for the star wars universe as you discussed earlier those come to mind for me and there's always this risk to give us this visual representation of what we've known for a long time and and solo is not exempt from that i mean just like rogue one the story comes from a simple line of dialogue from episode four it's the ship that made the kessel run in less than 12 parsecs gives it its strength is that the origin story itself is, is what's being told here. Han solo has always been a character that we want to know more about. Whereas these other stories and this or, or other universes aren't really necessary. Um, I know that you find the intrigue of the political stuff from the prequels in uh, very intriguing. And to a point I do as well, but the action of the Star Wars universe happens in episodes four, five, and six, and seven and eight to to a, a, an equal or a lesser degree, depending on how you want to describe it. But most everything we know about Han is very ambiguous, and for his character, it makes that intriguing. So, getting a chance to see his past, how he came to know Lando and Chewie, and get the Millennium Falcon. These are stories that we are interested in. Like we want to see those expanded. We don't want to just know, oh yeah, he somehow won the Millennium Falcon from Lando. Um, he rescued Chewie, uh, maybe? I don't know. These are these are things that were like Han himself is an interesting enough character that he's worth having his backstory told. And so a movie like this, while risky, I think paid itself off dividends because we actually wanted to experience that story firsthand as an audience and we got it with this one yeah we definitely did uh, whether you wanted it or not and we'll get into obviously how much backstory we got i like that a lot i like that connect or not connect point i like that one word takeaway mine was a very simple word this is the word that i immediately thought of when i was watching the film and it's the one that i wrote in my review when i 
when I first walked out. And it's the one that stuck with me the whole time, even through my second viewing of the movie. And that is just fun. Simply fun. Simple word, but it means so much. And for someone like me, I went into this movie with so many reservations, thinking that it was mostly unnecessary. So unlike you, I didn't necessarily think I wanted all of that backstory and that information. So to come out of it feeling like I wanted to stand up and cheer when Han and Chewie are zipping into hyperspace, hands joined on that accelerator, and with Alden Ehrenreich with the the famous Han grin smashed across his face, really embodying the character, I felt like it was something special at that point. I had such a fun time with the movie, and I loved that it didn't need big stakes to accomplish its goal. And I like heist films. This was an intergalactic heist film and it was complete with a great team up, had an amazing supporting cast. It existed to tell an origin story. And I think it did that very, very, very well. And all in all, I just enjoyed the experience and I didn't have to think too much. And sometimes I think that that's what we need. I will say that when I was watching a movie recently, or no, it was a TV show I was watching recently, I saw a piece of a George Lucas interview where he said, I made Star Wars for 12-year-olds, the original one, A New Hope. And that's what I felt when I saw Solo and when I took my 13-year-old son to see it. This was a movie, not necessarily a kid's movie, but as compared to something like the depth that force awakens and the last Jedi have given us, this was a movie that kids can just have fun with and enjoy. And so that was what I took out of it. Yeah. We definitely lose that value when it comes to the world of film criticism that we live in today with the social media and the accessibility that we have and the amount of people that are writing and podcasting and blogging about, their experience with film criticism or their experiences as film critics with different movies. And I don't know where this gets lost that a movie can't be great because it's just fun. And I'm very unapologetic about the new turtle franchise because I had that same kind of reaction when I left the, the sequel that I was just like, this is so much fun. It's nostalgic and all these different things. And Look, star star reviews are subjective. My five star could be someone else's two star. And I'm fully okay with admitting that. But the thing that frustrates me is invalidating somebody's experience because a movie didn't make you think or a movie isn't a candidate for an Oscar. Movies don't have to be those things in order to have value to their audience. I love that quote that, that Lucas made because that's a purposeful statement. That's a purposeful thing. When you make animated films, when you make Moanas, when you make Minions, (laughs) you make them for an audience and your audience is targeted. And if your audience likes it, then you've done a great job with that. I am not in the camp of Deadpool fans, but obviously there is an audience for that character and the stories that need to be told for his character. And so from an artistic point of view and from a cinematic point of view, go for it. It's just not going to be for me. And there won't be pe- there'll be people out there that think that solo should be more than it is. And I don't think that's the case. Well, 
I spoke a bit there about how I went into this not very excited. And those who know me and have followed me on social media are well aware of that. I mean, I, I was very vocal prior to this film coming out that I was not sold on Alden Ehrenreich as the leading man. And with this movie having his name attached to it, Solo, that's the main character. I felt like if he couldn't do what he needed to do, this was going to bomb. So that was one of the big reasons that I wasn't amped about it. But apparently I'm not alone because I've heard so much on the internet from people who were not rushing out to see this film, uh, unlike many, many other Star Wars films. So what do you think might additionally be attributing uh, factors that would be – or contributing factors that would keep people away from being as hyped as they normally are for a Star Wars movie? Well, it's not part of the main Roman numeral films it's not part of the it's in the it's in the universe it's a star wars story as the title implies but because of that maybe coupled with the mixed reviews that rogue one got it seems to be sitting in that same kind of b camp as opposed to top tier type stuff i mean we're talking about the star wars universe is being is dedicated to putting out a star wars film every year and it's obviously not going to be one of the nine every year we have that every other year. And so we got rogue one and then we got the last Jedi and now we have solo and we're going to get insert episode nine it's name here. And then um, as news has developed, we're now going to get a Boba Fett solo film, which I am assuming is going to be called Fett or Boba Fett, a star Wars story. So I think personally there wasn't a lot of excitement because of the mixed reviews of Rogue One, as well as the fact that this doesn't really hit in the main timeline. I mean, yes, it takes place at some point, but it's an offshoot. I mean, it's a tie-in. And tie-in books really aren't, like when it comes to comics, tie-in books aren't as popular as the main storyline. They're there to supplement. So it can be very, I don't know, niche to a lot of people. If If you like the character of Han Solo, it's intriguing. But if you're not, then... It's kind of like, eh, maybe I'll wait for that to come out on DVD. Yeah, I think that that's one of the big reasons right there is that this is about one character. This is about one person. This is not about the Star Wars universe. It's not about a group of characters. It's not about Luke and Leia or Rey and Finn and Poe. So if you don't have a love for Han Solo as a character, then you would have no reason to be excited about this, which also... I was not like I didn't thoroughly love him the way that I do now uh, after seeing it before going into it. So I was kind of in that boat. I would rather have I was more excited when I'd see a film with a whole bunch of characters. The other thing I I believe is a major factor is that this is six months away from the last Star Wars movie. Not only are we not used to getting them six months apart, but even getting them one year apart is a little bit crazy for us to have recently experienced we're not that's not a common thing and if this is so close together i think that might have something to do with it as well because people usually have a year or in many cases a decade to get excited about the next star wars film and so when this happens it's like well you didn't give me time to even get excited it's also a bit of Disney's own making with their own Marvel movies, because we had black Panther in February, a huge 
major blockbuster event than we had Avengers Infinity War like three weeks ago, right? Huge blockbuster event that everyone was going to see. So this comes on the heels of that. And while I definitely think they can all exist together and they're all excellent films, I can see where moviegoers that are more casual could be burnt out on that because they may want to hang on to a blockbuster film and kind of live in that for a while. And a lot of people may not be done with Avengers Infinity War. That's still fresh. It's not even a month old, Patrick. And and here we are with this huge new Star Wars movie. I think that's a fantastic point. The fact that we're just getting this machine gun firing of big blockbusters that I, I think the great thing about this is that they're all really good movies. You know, we could have a string of blockbusters during the summer. Last year was a great example of a string of blockbusters that just weren't great. And so you're kind of waiting for the big one. But you mentioned we have Black Panther, Infinity War, Solo, Jurassic World, Mission. I mean, this is a great time for the summer blockbuster. Technically, yes, I know uh, Black Panther was February, but whatever. We're talking about Ready Player One. Ready Player One. We're talking about 2018 being the year of the blockbuster, I think. It's amazing, yeah. The year of the successful blockbuster where you're you're looking at movies and you're going, man, this is amazing. And then you see Solo sitting kind of right in the middle of this and it feels small. It should be a big deal. It's Han Solo, man. But it feels small because it's not this big scaled event story. It's about one person, like you mentioned. I mean, you'd almost you almost think that people were that that a movie was coming out about Uncle Owen and Aunt Baru. I mean, that kind of thing. It's just how it feels. And it's not a it's not a slight to the movie. It's just when you sit it next to these big giants that are being incredibly successful and it's going to be followed by other big giant franchises that are probably going to be really successful. Um, it kind of does itself a disservice because it's like, okay. And I, I feel bad for it because it's a good movie. I mean, it's a lot of fun and it deserves to be up there with the other big blockbusters that we've experienced so far. Hey, speaking of Uncle Owen, were you aware that Joel Edgerton played young Uncle Did Owen? Did not know that. That's amazing. <laughs> I blew my mind. When I saw him, I had to pause real quick, and I was like, wait a second. That guy looks familiar. What is he doing in this movie? He's going to one-punch somebody. <laughs> I'll take an origin story. I don't care. Okay. So <laughs> continuing on with this thing, is this idea of what we expected or didn't expect from this, did you have anything that you were looking for specifically that you were really excited to find out and did anything catch you off guard other than the ending? Cause I know that that caught you off guard. It caught everybody off guard, but other than that, did anything kind of blow you away? Um, nothing blew me away. I didn't have many expectations about the movie, about what I wanted to see. I liked the way the story was crafted around the Kessel run. Cause I know that was spoken of decently in the original three, but one thing that my wife pointed out, one of the things that, that stood out to her was she asked me, she said, Hey, that girl, Kira, she wasn't mentioned in the original star Wars. Was she? I said, no, she was made up for this movie. And she goes, that's interesting because I don't know that she was really even necessary. I think she has a point as the filmmaker in me started trying to deconstruct the movie. And I'm like, okay, what would this movie look like without Kira in it? And it, I had a really hard time separating her from the plot because I felt like her character was really, really important and she didn't feel thrown in. She didn't feel, it wasn't like Han needed a love interest. Like she was a, 
integral part of his character being rounded rounded out. Like she gave him agency to an extent. She gave value to the dice <laughs> that end up being paid off in The Last Jedi. And so for me, that was really more of the the biggest surprise was having a brand new character so intimately connected to Han Solo that, of course, we don't know about in the original three, but that we can believe actually existed. And I, and I thought she really made the story a lot better than it, than it could have been. I did not feel like I had a huge surprise moment other than the ending because I was going in with so little expectations and here we are shocker again coming out of a movie that I went into with no expectations and really enjoyed seems to be a theme folks um but for me Kira is the best part of the film I love her I absolutely love her I if anything I would have liked more time with her frankly I agree with you 100% I think that her existence drives everything that will come after. I mean, without her in Han's life back on Corellia, who knows if he even has the motivation to get out and become a pilot or do what he, he does. Right. I mean, that may not even be the life arc that he takes, but he knows her. He wants to support her. He wants to be able to take her with him and then he does all of these things driven on a mission to get back to take her away from there. And I love the arc that that creates for his character where he starts off as someone that does care about other people, someone specifically, Kira. And he grows through this film into someone who is going to have a much harder time with that leading up to what we see. I also think this really does a good job of informing his later relationship with Leia because I love the parallels in Kira's character and Leia's characters. They're both very strong women. They both have no problem putting a man in his place. They both have no problem making decisions. They don't need someone, right? Mm -hmm. And you can see why Han would be attracted to Leia very clearly. Right. She is – go ahead. I, I just and I love the actress. So I love Amelia Clark. I think she she plays the role very well here. She has a lot of nuanced emotion. Uh, there's a lot of things that she can't say to Han. And we see kind of her struggle internally when when he's asking her questions that she can't answer. And she's got an awesome action sequence in this movie as well mm-hmm. that I love, even if it's super brief. I think it's really, really cool. And frankly, I think going forward, she is the key point of this entire thing becoming something that ties into something new and fresh and something else. Like she's the, she's the piece that allows this to go forward. And we'll talk about this more later, what that could be into a universe where we get to see more of young Han. Yeah. And so I love that. I was, yes. Sorry, you were just kind of saying exactly what I was thinking. And I regret and am also excited about the possibility of getting a sequel to this. Um, Anthology films like this, I feel like should be one-offs. It should be like a story that's told and it's done. This film gives us not just an ending that's open-ended, but a character that's open-ended. And she's that character. Because what I want and something that I I felt lacking, maybe purposefully, was the fact that I need to know 
how that relationship resolves tragically, redemptively, whatever, in order to get us to a new hope. Because right now there's a gap for me. There's a, I have a love. My name's Solo. I have a love for, of this girl and she leaves. And then the next time we see Han Solo, he's working for Jabba and meeting up with Luke. That's disconnecting for me. He, something needs to resolve. She needs to die. They need to do something needs to happen. Mm -hmm. And I hope that there's a follow-up film where we get to spend more time with him and Chewie and see her arc flesh itself out. Yeah. So we'll just get hit on it then, because I agree wholeheartedly that there is what you would call a gap. And I've had this debate with someone else recently where his view of it was, this is a movie that doesn't tell us anything about Han Solo because he ends up at the same place that he started. And so there's no progression of his character. Like he is the character at the end of this movie that he is at the beginning of a new hope or, or isn't, I'm sorry, is not the character at the end of this movie that he is at the beginning of new hope. He's much more soft and stuff. And I, I would agree, but I don't think that it's a negative. I think we only see a sum of that progression to getting him to where he is in a new hope. He clearly learns lessons from the relationship with Beckett and the tragic way in which that ends that do push him toward his cynical view of the world and the way he is in new hope. But with the interest, the love interest, I think that there is gotta be something more that is going to continue to push him toward that more, more reserved, like uh, push it. Uh, I can't think of the right words. Um, reluctant and resistant kind of character that he is. Mm -hmm. But so I'm with you and I'm torn on that. I don't think it's a problem for this film, but it does create a situation where you have to now take this movie and make more. Yeah. And sure. if you don't, then it, you've done us a disservice because it's not a complete story. It's not. No, it clearly says the story continues somewhere else. And I don't know if that is the fault of the writing team or having a directorial handoff in the middle of filming or early on in filming, but it's definitely something that feels incomplete. This doesn't feel like a complete story to me. Yeah, I would agree. All right, well, let's go through some of these origins because I wrote this in my review that this movie has so many origins in it that it has the story for everything you could want and everything you don't even know that you wanted. It really does. It tells us how everything comes about. So rather than just like read a list of the origins that we are gifted in this movie, what stuck out to you the most? Like what did you really enjoy learning about? And then is there conversely, are there any of the origins that you did not like getting? Well, the biggest one for me was I'd always wanted to see how Han won the, the Millennium Falcon from Lando. And as I'm watching this movie, I keep going through lines of dialogue in my head from Empire and from Return of the Jedi and the conversations that he has. Your ship, I want her off you fair and square. The Millennium Falcon 
herself has become a supporting actor in this, in this saga. I mean, when she makes the appearance in, uh, in the force awakens, I know everybody sitting next to me got incredibly giddy. And of course, the first time we see her in this movie, I'm probably not mistaken that people got giddy when they, when they saw her for the first time as well, but seeing how playing this, this card game, uh, what was it, what was it called? Sabak. Sabak. Right. Yeah. I totally want to play it now, by the way. Well, that was probably, that was probably the moment of the movie that I, I sat up and was really interested in the movie because before then I felt like the movie was kind of meandering a little bit. And so Sabak for me, that, that whole, cause that, look, I'm a sucker for gambling movies. I'm going to, you know, if we can make a whole month of, you know, poker movies, I'd be all about that. So, uh, you know, 21 rounders, you know, whatever you want, but I just, I love movies surrounding card games. And so seeing this one moment and knowing that this is potentially where <laughs> solo gets the millennium Falcon and then realizing, Nope, not this time. <laughs> I love that. I love the fact that we get a little misdirection, there, a little misdirection there. Rightly so with a card game, you're going to get misdirection. That was something that I didn't necessarily think I wanted to know more about. But when I saw it, I was like, oh, this is where he's going to get it. I'm so excited about this. Uh, so that was one. Of course, the Kessel Run making up the majority of the the backside of the movie, the big plot of getting this uh, getting this trillium or whatever it was from uh, from this crazy planet structure thing. I don't know. You know, when it comes to Star Wars, I, I don't know names and stuff. So Coaxium, by the way. Coaxium, not really. That's, that's a Star Trek thing. But those are the two big ones that stood out to me as being the the origins that that I gravitated towards. I don't know that there was anything I didn't like. Some just didn't stand out to me as much. Well, I have both. I the ones that I really loved were simple things, to be honest. I thought that when Han gets the blaster, there was something so powerful about that for me. He's not got a weapon up until that point. I mean, he does when he's, you know, running through the mud and the war, war fighting time, but he's not got his own weapon. And I never thought to myself, wow, he has this iconic blaster that I really want to know how he got. But it happens so casually in the film. Beckett is un and it's actually really cool by the way because Beckett is undoing his sniper rifle and it like takes the barrel off of it and that's what the blaster is he puts like another little barrel on the end of it and he gives it to Han and the way he looks at it and the way he then uses it and knowing that that has carried forth with him for his entire life like as a symbol of his relationship with Beckett, the mentor, I got a lot out of that moment and a lot out of that origin story, even though it's just like a brief thing. And I thought that that is where the film was at its best was when it was showing us things like that without like bonking us over the head with them. The millennium Falcon, the Kessel whole Kessel run sequence was obviously up there for me as well. I really enjoyed that. The, one that I don't like as much is there are a couple moments that I feel like were callbacks to Return of the Jedi. At the beginning of the film, Han has a meeting with, I don't remember what they're called, but they're 
this race of, you know, bounty like bounty hunter overlords like Jabba the Hutt. And he fakes having a thermal detonator in his hand with a rock. That was cool. It was a good sequence. Kind of made me laugh. But it is referencing a a moment in Return of the Jedi in which Leia is going to get Han. He's in Carbonite with Jabba. And she has a thermal detonator. And I thought to myself, how would she know about that? Unless Han has told her stories of this at some point in his life. And there's just a lot of disconnect there. Like there's, you have to fill in the dots to make that a thing that matters. Conversely, there's another section of the film when they are on the, at the mines trying to get the coaxium where I forget. I think it's Beckett. He's wearing a uniform, same type of uniform that they're wearing on the return of the Jedi skiff. Uh, There's, they're walking in, they're doing the fake prisoner gag, just like they do in Return of the Jedi. It's, it's all very similar to exactly what happens. And so in my head, in order to make it work, I have to tell myself, well, Han has mu- must have told these stories to Leia and Lando, of course, who was there, or Lando, who was there, then tells Leia, hey, once upon a time, we did it this way, so why don't we try this to go get Han? Does that make sense? So it does. it's kind yeah. of it's kind of shaky for me. <laughs> um, the other one that I know I've heard lots of people on the internet growling about is the origin of the name Solo. Why do we get that? No one wanted that. It's corny. It's cheesy. I'm fifty fifty on this. We didn't need it. We didn't have to have it. And the delivery of the line by it being just some random imperial guard. Who says, oh, I don't know. Hmm, Solo. Like, it's kind of goofy. But what makes it work for me is there's a moment right before that where he asks Han, who are your people? And Han says, I don't have a people. And there's just, again, a brief character development moment there where you see that pain in Han. That he doesn't have someone to call his own. He doesn't have a family. He doesn't have a planet to go back to, really where he's welcomed and he can just live or, you know, go back. And and when all of this, if he just wants to get out of this life and, and have a simpler existence, he doesn't have that. And I really felt the weight of that. And so when it, when he gives him the name, it was moving for me overall. Did, how did you feel about that particular thing? Well, I'm like you, the delivery of it didn't seem very strong, but the value of it did. And in the star Wars universe, Names have value. They have significance. The moment that we hear the name Ben Solo in The Force Awakens, we are immediately thinking about Han and Leia. If that last name had been Skywalker, our minds would have gone someplace else. If if that last name had been Kenobi, we would have been thinking something else. There's something significant about these names in the Star Wars universe. And even if it came from something very arbitrary, like some guard just giving him a name. It now means something in the main timeline of the, of the trilogy and of the subsequent movies after that. And so I'm with you as far as 50, 50, 
I didn't need to know the origin, but I guess I'm glad that I knew it was given to him, that he wasn't born into it. It wasn't, he was the author. He was the patriarch of the solo name. He was the beginning of that name. And that name now has important significance and it starts with him. I love that, man. I love that you tie it into the future and to his son and where that goes. Because now there is a name, like you said, out in the universe, there is a people called Solo. And they're always, well, hopefully there always will be. I guess we're, I guess that's yet to be defined and, and to known. We should, we should find out in episode nine. So stay tuned for another like couple months. It'll be out, I'm sure. Um, other stuff that I thought was fun. Obviously, Lando in general, I just loved his character. I think Donald Glover was the great choice. We all kind of knew that he was going to knock this out of the park, and I have nothing negative to say about him. He's amazing. His charisma was wonderful. And once Han started interacting with him, it really, all in Aaron Wright, transformed at that point for me. Like you said, it was a slow going at the beginning, and I was like, hmm, I don't know if he's going to be able to pull this off. But by the time he gets interacting with Lando, I was like, yep, now, now you're turning into my Han, you know? And by the end of the movie, I was fully sold on him. I love that just like in empire, he calls him Han. And we find out like that, that has been going on long before that. And he intentionally does it. Like he does it by mistake the first time, right? Like he doesn't really think about it. But then when Han makes a big deal out of it, it's very clear that Lando's like, you know what? I'm not going to give you the satisfaction. I'm going to keep calling you hand. So when I hear him say hand and empire strikes back, it has new meaning to me. It makes me chuckle. Yeah. It's a, uh, yeah, it, his relationship with Han, Han, Lando and Han's relationship with Chewie, I think are the two biggest relationships that stood out to me. And I loved seeing that because in the original trilogy, those are the two relationships that we saw him interact with the most that have history. Like everybody else is present. He builds a new relationship with Luke. He builds a new relationship with Leia. He builds a new relationship with, um, you know, everybody else, but in the millennium Falcon would be a third, but you've got Chewie and you've got Lando and you've got the Falcon, the three relationships that I think Ron Howard and company did a fantastic job of elevating above all the other ones saying that these are the ones that, that people are going to remember. That so they do remember. Speaking of Chewie, what did you think about the origin story of how he meets Chewie? How, how did that play for you? It was fine. I mean, it wasn't anything like, oh, wow. But I knew that we were going to get it. And I'm glad that it didn't have to be anything like incredible. It wasn't like, oh, my gosh, that's why. So, yeah, it um, yeah, it was fine. What about yeah, you? I, you know, I was fine with it as well. I kind of liked this is where. I had to deduct a little bit from my enjoyment of this film. There were things that I liked about it. I enjoy the fact that he had to meet Chewie, who was a prisoner, and they have to bond together and escape together, and that's how they go off on this adventure, which ultimately leads to their friendship. But I feel like they did overdo some references because – they they made this turn into again just like one of the original films where i don't remember who it is now at this point i think it's luke is thrown down in the pit right with the mo- the monster and i forgot what monster it was sorry star wars fans don't hate me but 
he's thrown down in there and he has to survive living with this creature. And it's and in very intentionally referencing that it's got the stormtroopers up top, you know, making jokes and talking about it, just like happens in the original trilogy as well. There's characters up top, like looking down, watching this happen, taking entertainment from it. Well, let me ask you this. Do you feel like Solo's, it's a two-part question. One, do you feel like Solo had too many callbacks? And if so, do you feel like that hurt your overall experience with the film? Fun notwithstanding. So a two-part question. I, yeah, I guess I do think it had too many. And what I mean by that is I think it, I don't mind getting the origin stories of these things, but I think having to make the origins all a reference to previous films yeah. was an issue for me. It was one I, of my I, biggest yeah, issues. I see that. Yeah. Um, and it did, it did. And, and I will say the only reason it was an issue, I call it an issue or it hurt me is because it distracted me from yeah. just enjoying learning about the origin of Chewie because I was like, Oh, Hey, this moment looks familiar. Where do I know that from? And I was right. wrecking my brain trying to remember. That's that's kind of why. When I saw the runtime for this, I was like, oh my gosh, really? It's going to be that long? And I felt like there's some things that could have been trimmed and some of that could have been trimmed. We didn't have to necessarily... When you, when you create that kind of intertextuality and nostalgia and callbacks, if you do it too much, you're telling your audience, I don't trust you to get this. Sometimes you can just have your character do something new and not have to reference something else because... You've already established it. Right. And if, you, and if you set, look, if you get the big three, if you get his connection with Chewie, his connection with Lando, his connection with the Falcon, for me personally, that's enough. You don't need to show me the origin of the blaster or the dice or the thermal detonator. You don't need to do that for me. You can just let him be Han Solo. And I can maybe make those connections if I want to. Mm-hmm. But when you kind of tease me with that, when you kind of linger on the blaster and you go, oh, yeah, I do remember. When was that? Well, now you've lost me for about four or five seconds and you're probably doing something else that is more interesting than me thinking about what movie I saw that. in. Mm-hmm. It's funny though. Cause even though it is a longer runtime, I didn't feel that I enjoyed the ride so much that it was paced really well. I thought having yeah. seen it twice, I didn't, I didn't mind it. And it, I would have liked more of Val and Rio. I felt like they were gone too soon. They were interesting characters who existed. That was one of my small criticisms. They, they were only there really to serve Beckett's loss and Han observing, I guess Beckett's loss. I, they just, they didn't have enough of a role for me and I liked them both. And I was like, man, that sucks. Like we yeah. took these cool characters and we introduced them and then they, they're dead. Well, um, hey, we got Paul Bettany from this, you know? Okay. Vision, so it's, it's good I to think see he was great. Right. I thought he was great, man. I really enjoyed everything about the crime syndicate. So mm-hmm. back to the fact that this is a heist film to center it with these crime syndicates that are rivals and competing and the beginnings of a rebellion that they don't know is a rebellion that they think are just space pirates. I mean, the whole aesthetic worked mm-hmm. for me, the Crimson Dawn, his freaking one of the coolest things about Star Wars for me is what kind of new things are we going to see? We saw that awesome train, which ended up being a really, really badass action sequence um, in the trailer. And I was like, well, what else? Like, what unique vehicles or droids are we going to see? And we'll talk about the droid in a second, but I love the yacht 
that oh, Dryden Voss has. It's so cool, man. Just the, the new designs. Love it. There's some nuance to him. And Paul Bettany's, I, I really like him as an actor. Most of the stuff that I've seen him in, I've just really, really adored. Did you notice that anytime he got mad, the, the lines in his face got more pronounced? I thought that was a fantastic subtlety. I'm like, is he getting, oh, oh, he's real. Oh, you can tell he's getting mad. He's getting red or partially red or split red or whatever. That's <laughs> going zebra red on me. But yeah, Paul Bettany is a, the, he's so, I don't I wouldn't say he's controlled, but I feel like the, I love the first time we meet him because he, they're being, he's being asked about and they say, yeah, he's taking care of the governor. <laughs> and you cut to him and he's basically strangling him. <laughs> and then he goes, ah, okay, I need to take, I need to stop and just take a break. Like he's just worked out or something like that. And he's just introduced as a psychopath almost. And you're almost, even though, you know, solo is going to survive this movie. You wonder, will he be frozen in carbonite <laughs> and come back or something like that? Yeah. There's, there's a chance that he will, meet his demise in some way, shape or form and have a miraculous recovery. But Paul Bettany was just great as a villain. I really, really liked him. I agree. I just love, I love the way, like you're saying that subtlety where he, uh, he will just have this casual conversation about the fact that they're about to be murdered. Like it's no big thing to him. He is so, like you said, psychopathic, but he's so, it's it's normal life for him. It is just the way it is. And he even says that. He says, it's not personal. It's just business. And mm-hmm. it all is very much just business to him. He says, don't fail me again, because if you do, we'll all be out of options. You know, and it's just so like, ha ha ha. And I'm thinking, uh, that's not good, right? Like, yet you're like literally threatening their lives at this point. So I really enjoyed him too. I'm glad that you did also. The the lightsaber also is one of the other things that I thought was really cool. So I always wondered about like what new lightsaber are we going to see? And in this one, we get his brass knuckle blades, lightsaber blades. And those were really, really unique mm-hmm. and freaking interesting as can be. Um, all right. So, you know, that's a rundown. Oh, the Kessel run. Oh, the droid. L337. First of all, that spells leap in case you weren't aware. Didn't that was too far. That's too far, Ron Howard. Too, too much. Um, I am torn on this. And here's why. I love the performance. Phoebe Waller Bridges is fantastic as this droid nails it. I thought it was hilarious the first moment we meet her with Lando going to get her from the droid fighting arena where she's making everybody upset and like trying to speak out for droid rights. That was hilarious. It pro- It's progression throughout the story of her becoming this activist and trying to start a droid rebellion. I know that it has meaning and this cultural relevance to it. It can be very modern, very prescient with the way the world is today. But I felt like it was too much in the story. Then again, I enjoyed the way that her character ends up going out. And I really loved the fact that when this little, and this is what I'm talking about when I said origin story of everything, there's a line in empire where three PO throwaway line, 
where 3PO says something about talk connecting and, and talking with the Millennium Falcon, and it has a very advanced navigation system. And it has a it speaks a very interesting dialect, he says. That's where we now know why the ship has an interesting dialect and has such an amazing navigation system. Never in a million worlds would you or I have thought that we were going to find out something that detailed. But the emotion behind it meant a lot to me, and it made me think a lot higher of uh, care a lot more about the Millennium Falcon. So I was torn on that character. Like I wouldn't, I didn't need all the droid rights stuff, but I like how it ended up. How about you? Yeah. I think the star Wars does something really interesting for me is that it gives me an emotional attachment to non-human things or non-organic things. The Millennium Falcon, uh, BB eight, R2, D2, C three PO to an extent. Um, the world of the Star Wars universe is unique in that it allows us to attach ourselves to things that aren't real, whether they're fantastically created creatures from other planets or droids in this case. And I think that it would have been overkill for her in what you're talking about with the droid revolution if we hadn't seen her final arc pay off. I feel like her destruction helped pay off everything that her character was kind of shouting for. It reminded me a lot of Marvin from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, this kind of eccentric, and he was voiced by Alan Rickman, different personalities altogether, but very much self-aware, very eccentric, very much kind of fighting against the world of look, I'm being oppressed because I'm not a human <laughs> I, because I don't have a heart or a brain to an extent or flesh. And I didn't pick up on the the nuance of it. I, I felt like it was really playing more for comic relief until that moment when she gets destroyed and Lando is essentially just holding her in his arms. But I love the fact that she finds redemption in being connected to the Falcon and gives that importance to the Falcon more than I was connected to it originally. So the Falcon means more to me now because she's connected to it. Right. Yeah. So I'm glad that you did because me too. And when I saw it watching the trilogy afterwards, I was like, Oh, a little bit when I saw it. Cause I yeah. knew that she was there. Um, the other things, speaking of that, what about the Kessel run? Anything about that, that stood out to you? It felt very Star Trekky to me when you, when the going part, through, yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole um, Malstorm, I think, is what it was called. Maelstrom, Maelstrom, and the and mall. The, which yeah. my son, as we left the theater, was one of your favorite parts. I wonder why they. I just thought it was hilarious. They kept calling that big monster the mom. That was funny, and I was like, "No, Tyler, it's the mall." M A W. Hey, you can tell him from Uncle Patch that I thought it was the mom. Too. Maybe it is. Maybe I'm wrong. I could have sworn it was the mall. Because that means mom, mom got flushed down the toilet. Okay. And, <laughs> but it felt very Star Trek y to me. There was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation that the whole escape sequence, almost verbatim visually from verbatim visually, that's not a real thing. It was almost exactly the way in this particular episode the Enterprise escapes from this thing. And I was like, oh, that's cool. I'm hoping for Picard at some point to show up and be like, make it so Han Solo, you know, that kind of thing. But I love the, I love the whole escape sequence. I thought that it was almost my connecting point. The moment that Solo sits down and he grabs a throttle and you see him just grin 
And I'm like, yeah, he's right in his wheelhouse. Right. And it's about, it's about to get crazy. And then he uh-huh. starts doing all these just, just sick dude, maneuvers. Dude, the, the spin of the, the Falcon spin where he flips it and uses the Falcon to hit the TIE fighter. Oh, it's so good. Flips it and hits the yeah. TIE fighter into the asteroid. I lost it. That's probably my favorite little like action bit in the whole movie. I was like, yes, that's so freaking cool. And only Han Solo would come up with that. Yeah. Also, I like Lando's capes, his plethora of capes that he had in his closet. <laughs> so I, I, no, I noticed a moment the second time around that I thought was really fun when he's there and he, he walks in to find Kira trying on the cape, which, of course, she would do. Why wouldn't you do that when there's this room full of capes? Sure. He takes it from her so he can get close to her and he just drops it on the ground, which I feel like is such a Han Solo thing to do. Like he doesn't care about <laughs> stuff, but he grabs it from her and he takes it. You see him reach behind himself and just drop it. He doesn't hang it back up. He drops it on the ground of the closet. And I was, thought that was hilarious. It's, um, a, it's, a, it's a dig at, at, uh, at, at Lando. Lando. Like, yeah. you know, it's but, a custom made one. Let's just put it on the floor. But I was with you, man. I kind of torn, I guess on the Kessel run. I it was cool to see it all visually play out. I really enjoyed, like I said, the, sequence where he's running from the tie fighters it it gets a little over the top with the monster and the maelstrom or gravity well you know and zipping through perfect you know twists to get through the rocks before they they come crashing together or whatever like it got a little bit nuts (laughs) for me um, but i still think it was a lot of fun and it was exciting Mm -hmm. so you know, it is what it is. My almost connecting point, and I'll use this before we kind of transition, I guess, into the ending, was his relationship with Beckett. That was the thing that was super close to me. And one of the the biggest takeaways from this film, what I found makes it, in addition to Kira, so profoundly important. We get this mentor, this person that kind of is who he becomes in so many ways that he now has this knowledge of. And mm-hmm. all of the little origin stories aside, like him saying, I'll be on Tatooine. There's this gangster who has a big job, which is obviously why Han ends up going there and meeting Jabba the Hutt in the first place. Yeah. So that's important. But the fa- and beyond the fact that he shoots first, right? It's how that all plays out. The emotion of that moment where he has to kill him because he knows that Beckett's going to do it if he doesn't. And then he goes over to him and just kind of holds him having gone through it, the things that Beckett says to him about just go into it, believing that everybody's going to betray you and you'll never be disappointed. Those were very powerful moments and lines for me in this movie. And I loved that relationship. It gave that probably even more than Kira that made this specific film give his character so much depth and rounding out for me moving forward, it's what made me love this character now the way that I do. Yeah, I think Beckett was great. And Woody Harrelson's a great choice to play him. I mean, a fantastic mentor and completely honest. The fact that Han shoots him, holds him, and Beckett goes, man, I'm glad you did that because I would have shot you. I mean, mm-hmm. you know he would have. Yeah. And I think that his motto about go into everything, assuming everyone's going to betray you and you'll, you'll be fine. (laughs) I kind of feel like that's a, it's not, but it feels like a little meta line when describing people who go into movies, expecting them to be bad and their expectations are actually a lot better because they have such a, I like that. 
I don't think it's, I, I, I don't think that's a commentary on movie going experiences. That's just in light of you having low expectations right. going in and how they were elevated. I think that there's some value to that when it comes to how we watch movies. But it's a very tragic character that, that has that flaw that feels that way about the world around him mm-hmm. and that lives life that way. And we yeah, see I mean, how that can make Khan so cynical. It's, it's hopeless. And one of the criticisms that I remember hearing about before the movie came out was the fact that Han Solo's character has already had an arc in four, five and six. Like, so why would we need to see anything before then? Well, we need to see him become a cynic or at least become a little bit more jaded. And I don't think we've seen that just yet. Like I do like the, the ending where he is like that John Wayne says, you know what? You wouldn't basically, you wouldn't want to be mixed up with a guy like me. I'm, I'm a loner. I'm, I am who I am. And I think that he has room to have a, another arc that would end up landing on episode four's entrance into the star Wars universe. Yeah, I do too. But speaking of that, do you think Darth Maul is going to be a part of that arc? <laughs> so, so how did you respond when she goes over and she turns on the hologram and all of a sudden we see the Sith Lord? How did that play for you? Two things went through my head. One, what? Is that Darth Maul? And two, if that is, man, he's put on some weight. He looked a little thicker than I saw him last in episode one when he was cut in half. Genuinely, I was I was surprised. And the first thing I did when I left the theater was Google Darth Maul solo. And I come to find out through the what Star Wars Wiki link that Darth Maul actually is alive, at least in the the world of television and clone wars or or whatever the um in canon he is alive yes yes it it surprised me uh it also kind of excited me because i felt like of the in the prequel trilogy i I felt like his character got shortchanged like i would love to have seen him survive which he did but survive in order to be a part of the other two films because he's he should have been more important to obi-wan than uh than he was so I was happy to see him because I think that adds intrigue to to Solo as a character and to that mini franchise. Well, I love it. I love reveals like that. And I love being in a theater where people get excited and like scream out curse words or like exclaim out loud, like exuberantly when they see something crazy like that happen. It's such a cool movie experience to know someone's that into it. I was like, what the? Huh? And just like you, I went home and I immediately did the same thing. I Googled, I looked it up. I was like, why is he still alive? I thought he was cut in half. How the heck could this possibly be happening? And yeah, he's got robot legs. The second time I watched it, I actually paid attention. And sure enough, in the hologram, you can see that his legs are robotic, just like the rest of his torso. And I love multiple things about this and where it can go. I didn't think it was a cheap callback to a new other film because of what you said. He was a great character. He's beloved by fans. Why not give him something else to do? But even in the canon, when he comes back, he's going after Obi-Wan. 
most people want an Obi-Wan revival or young Obi-Wan movie, right? So what better villain to introduce that we know is going to want to go after Obi-Wan? It's a perfect way to to have this young character universe of solo films kind of tie together in their own way. Yeah. And then Kira, for me, I was like, yes, give me her as a Sith. Give me her as a Sith apprentice to Darth Maul because that will get Han to the place he needs to be in A New Hope is if the girl that he loves becomes that where she, I mean, what else could happen to her? Come on. Like that's got to be the path she takes, right? And so, and we get a a female Sith for the first time ever, I believe. Like there's so many cool ways and directions that that signaled it could go from here that I didn't mind because yeah, it's kind of still telling old stories, so to speak, but it's really not. It's new stuff. It's making refreshing connections between characters. I mean, when you can use Darth Maul to a, to the extent that we anticipate him being used, there's a lot that you can tell with his story. You can give him an arc can give her an arc. I love the fact that she could become a Sith Lord or a Sith apprentice and having that explain how Han gets to where he does. It legitimizes his arc in this potential double feature trilogy, whatever it would be. Um, and it just makes it makes his character a lot more valuable. Like he's not just the swashbuckler, but he's just, he's a lot more valuable than that. Yeah, for sure. And what about um so lastly, I guess the Bubba Fett announcement you you mentioned earlier, James Mangle, director of Logan and several movies that I really love like 310 to Yuma as well. well. How do you feel about that being announced? Is that something you're excited about at all or I I knew it was coming uh, when when the Force Awakens came out, there was the announcement that the Disney franchise and the Star Wars franchise were going to have movies out every year for the star Wars universe. And they announced three anthology films. Um, I don't think rogue one was announced as the title, but I knew they were doing a solo individual, a solo story and a Boba Fett story. It was rumored. It was, it wasn't a given, but yeah, it was, it was definitely in the rumor mill of. So I was excited about that rumor and I'm really excited about Mangle being in the director's chair because even though I know he's not going to get Logan on like as far as his depth of violence and just dark darkness to that, because I don't want that in star Wars. I want star Wars to stay family friendly and he has the ability to do that, to to create great action sequences and create great drama without getting heavy handed. Although he does a great job at that too. But I think him in the director's chair for Boba Fett, I think that will give him a lot more weight. It will give him, what I think the original trilogy started doing, but was sort of sideswiped by the prequels and that's give him an intimidation factor because Boba Fett's a great bounty hunter. He's mysterious. He is, um, he's got a really cool backstory that was kind of wiped away by the, by uh, the clone wars and, or the attack of the clones. Yeah. Sorry. And, I think what Mangle is going to do is hopefully rewrite that story and bring us the Boba Fett that we fell in love with in Empire and Return of the Jedi. Yeah. And I think that 
much the way that this is fun, 12-year-old, Star Wars, family-friendly adventure film, I think that Boba Fett has potential to be a much darker-toned PG. Within PG-13, of course, I'm sure, but more like a Rogue One type of feel to it for that character. And I like that we can get the different tones of characters, much like in the Marvel Universe. We can have characters that have that darker backstory that aren't going to play out quite the same as some of the lighter-hearted characters in the series. So I'm excited about it, although I do think that they are going to have problems. I mean, it is well-known right now that this movie is struggling at the box office, and by struggling, it's like having a hard time making it to $100 million opening on a four-day holiday weekend. For a Star Wars film, for any blockbuster, that's tough, but this one costs more than any other Star Wars film. It costs over $250 million to make, which, for the frankly, I don't see it in the film. I love the cinematography. I think it's gorgeous, but I don't see where that money necessarily made it something that The Last Jedi or other Star Wars films aren't visually. And I wonder how that's going to affect them. Now, clearly, they have the money. They have Infinity War, The Last Jedi, and Black Panther that have all gone well over like $1.5 billion in the last six months. So... They can take a little bit of a hit on Solo, but it's clear that that is not going to make the money back that they expected it to. And I wonder how it's going to affect their decision-making going forward or if it's going to change anything. Because if some people feel this is just an okay Star Wars movie and that Rogue One was kind of just an okay Star Wars movie, like they're, that's where they fall in the rankings, these Solo films. Is Disney, is Lucasfilm going to be okay pumping out these average Star Wars films every single other year, whereas we were used to every single Star Wars film being this big mega event? Yeah, if the MCU didn't exist, I think they'd be worried. But look, you can rob Peter to pay Paul. And if I'm a Disney exec with all the knowledge that I have, duh, whatever, not really, I I would say just keep doing it. You have the money to let these guys tell their stories, let them tell their stories. And if Ron Howard says, I'd like to make another one. And it's okay, by the way, to not have a trilogy when it comes to that kind of thing. I'd say, let your creators create. You have the fight. You have the means to do that. You have the financial means to do that. And there's an, there may not be a large audience for that, but there is an audience. So take a risk. I agree. Risk. I agree. And I, and I really hope that people get out to see this. I hope that word of mouth spreads how much fun it is, right, for families and that those people that were reluctant get to the theater and get to experience it because I think they're going to regret it if they don't because they're going to watch it when it hits the DVD and Blu-ray. You know that. And they're going to go, man, I wish I would have seen that on the big screen. That would have been fun. You know, so I, I encourage if anybody's listening to this and like has had it spoiled. It's still worth going to see on the screen. I've seen it twice. So I knew what it was going into it, but I do hope that they keep making good films. And we also have that new trilogy coming from Ryan Johnson that we have an all new story with all new characters. I'm super duper psyched for that one. All right, man, connecting points. Surely we have them. So let's talk about them. And listeners, you probably have figured this out at this point. I'm guessing because of what Patrick and I haven't really talked much about. That's such a important part of Han Solo's character. And that is 
his friendship with Chewie. This film really helped me realize how inseparable these two are as characters. Han Solo is not in existence for my world without Chewbacca as part of it. These are, this is basically the, the heart of the movie for me. And before Han meets Chewie, felt like something was off. It didn't quite feel right without him there. But after he meets the Wookiee, it's like that good-natured humor and tone that we know so well from his character that Harrison Ford portrayed. Then it returns and it continues throughout the length of this story. So I guess if I had to say like one moment as a connecting point, it might be when Chewie decides to help Han save Lando instead of leaving with the other Wookiees. I liked that scene a lot, particularly because there's a whole string of characters that one after the other end up making a sacrifice to go risk themselves to save somebody else. Lando going to save L3, Han going to save Lando, and then ultimately Chewie going to save them all. I thought that that played out really well. But we've seen now Chewie has said his goal was to get back to, you know, liberating Kashyyyk or whatever the name of the planet is, essentially where the Wookiees have been all displaced. And so he runs into these Wookiees. He, he has family members. He has others of his species that he can go off with. And he chooses Han. And I think the entire progression of their relationship up to that point, and as they learn about each other, Chewie becomes someone that Han can trust and vice versa. And it's someone that Han will always put above himself, which is not something that is consistent with his character and anyone else. And then that final shot of him asking, when have I ever steered you wrong? And Chewie cocking his head and giving him that look that says, are you kidding me? That was perfect. And that was my son's favorite moment in the movie too. <laughs> I'm going to have to agree with you that relationship is probably the best couple to come out of the star Wars universe. In my opinion, totally it's authentic. They both need each other on the surface. You could see them as just being completely independent, but the way that their chemistry as the actors work to sell what we've already become familiar with, with Han and Chewie is just amazing. And I love the little moments that we get with him. I love the moment when Han and Chewie are running out after they've gotten their stuff from the planet and Han's or Chewie sees his people, quote people, being beaten up and he wants to go fight. And Han's like, no, 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 we got to stick to the plan. In Chewie's own language that we don't understand, Han reiterates and says, okay, you got to do what you got to do. So I'll see you when I see you, essentially. And the next time we see him, he's rescuing Han. I think one of my favorite moments visually is when during the Kessel Run in the Maelstrom, you have Chewie hopping in the co-pilot seat and doing these amazing things. And Han's like, wait, I didn't know you flew. And, and Chewie goes, you know, whatever that was. And then Han goes, you're 195 years old. There's just a shot of Solo and Chewie in their respective places. And I like, that's a picture that epitomizes their relationship. They're in the place that they're 
meant to be in the Millennium Falcon sitting in those seats flying together. And I think that's where the relationship lives the most authentically and the most eloquently is in those seats in the Millennium Falcon. It's, it's kind of just like symbolically like their place in the universe. And I, I love that we get that in the last shot too, where he goes, have I ever steered you wrong? And, uh, and I just, I love their relationship. I think it's a fantastic one. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you had the same one as I did because there were other ones in this film. Clearly there were other moments that were emotionally connecting, which I thought was brilliant and what helped make this movie so good for me. But yeah, Chewy Han forever. All right, man. Well, we have had fun. I'm glad that you liked this as much as I did. It would have been a real awful time if you didn't <laughs> and uh, or if I didn't vice versa and you had to suffer through me being angry about it or something. Listeners, if you would like to continue the discussion with me, you can find me on Twitter talking constantly at Feelin' Film Aaron or using the show's Twitter account at Feelin' Film. Also, tomorrow we will be releasing an episode on American Graffiti. That is our next Connecting with Classics. I know that is a film that Patrick loves, and it will be my first time watching the movie in all of my years. So hopefully we'll do it justice. He can listen and critique it. Also later this week, we will be having an episode for you on the new Paul Schrader movie, First Reformed. And then next week's main episode will be a mini review up front of Paddington with a full review and full conversation on Paddington 2, what is, in my opinion, this year's best movie still as we move into June. Patrick, wow. where can people find you? <laughs> this is, yeah, considering you've been inundated with SIF coverage for like the past three weeks. So, well, if you want to keep the conversation going with me or talk about anything movie related or just life in general, you can contact me at Facebook and Twitter. I'm at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S. P-A-T-C-H. Uh, be sure to just search for me, at me, tag me, whatever you need to do to get my attention and we can keep any conversation started or going or whatever you want to do. You can also find me floating around the Facebook group. I'm usually there at least on Wednesdays dropping our weekly poll question. If you haven't joined the Facebook group, please do. That's where most of the great conversation takes place. We've got people dropping articles here and there. Jacob Neff, our newest contributor, has a couple of weekly posts that he puts out that you don't want to miss. So be sure to join and join the conversation from there. As we mentioned earlier, the donor pick for June begins in a few days, this coming Friday, as of when we're dropping this episode. And we are voting on racing movies, not racing movies. So if you would like to be a part of that, check out patreon.com slash film. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can be a part of the voting process. All right, man. Well, I look forward to next week in Paddington. It's always a good time. I can't wait for us to do some more. And I can't wait to hear what our listeners thought of Solo. So please leave us some comments. Come join that Facebook group and talk to us about this film. and Let us know which side of the force you fall on. Is this good or is this evil? All right, buddy. <laughs> Until next time, stay positive. <laughs>